Hey, it's Anita, and this is the Anita Posh Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Anita Posh Show. My guest today is one of the sharpest minds in the Bitcoin space. It's investment strategist Lynn Alden. She started investing at a young age and has a background in engineering and finance. Recently, Lynn shared the stage with the CEO and co-founder of Lightning Labs, Elizabeth Stark, at the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami, and their topic was called Bitcoin for Billions, Not Billionaires. I mean, I couldn't say it any better. This is exactly the core of my work in the Bitcoin space. And so I enjoyed this interview very much, and I hope you do too. Before we start, I have a message on my own behalf. I'm finally and happily releasing my new book called Learn Bitcoin with L in a bracket in July. If you want to get an update and informed about the release, please subscribe to my newsletter at anita.link newsletter, where I also send out weekly news from the Bitcoin space. And of course, if you're bored in the next weeks, because I won't be doing any new video interviews with guests, um, you can listen to my back catalog of 125 Bitcoin episodes with guests from all over the world and also from developing countries, Africa, Argentina, South America. So until I'm back... I hope you enjoy this episode and after a short break from my sponsors, on to the show. Enjoy! Many people worry about the right storage for their Bitcoin. And yes, holding them isn't always easy. Smartphones get lost, hard drives can crash and online wallets get hacked frequently. The safest way of storing cryptocurrencies long term is offline in a physical way. That's why Coinfinity developed the Card Wallet, the professional and easy cold storage solution. The Card Wallet supports various security features such as high-quality materials and tamper-proof features which prevent the manipulation of the card and make it a safe place for your beloved coins. Get yourself a Card Wallet now. You will get 20% off if you order at cardwallet.com anita. That's cardwallet.com slash Anita. Do you want to stay up to date with the things that happen in Bitcoin from my point of view? Then subscribe to Anita's Weekly, my newsletter with articles, videos, quotes, short tips on how to use Bitcoin and all that for free. Subscribe to Anita's Weekly at anita.link slash weekly. Hello, welcome, Lynn. Uh, it's great to have you on the show again. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be back. I appreciate you inviting me. <laughs> cool. Lynn, you were so kind to contribute to uh, my work and review parts of my upcoming book, Learn Bitcoin, where I'm writing about how our current monetary and banking system works, how money is created, the petrodollar, and if Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme. And these are all central topics of your work too and a lot of my writing um, uh, and my own learning is based on your work thanks for that i'm happy i could contribute in some way i mean there are certainly better people than me to focus on the technical stuff but anyway i can help with macro and things like that i'm happy to 
Yeah, of course. I learned so much from your, your work, and also now it's inside the book. And um, yes, also thanks for your uh, recommendation. That's really pretty cool. So, Lynn, you were recently at the stage on uh, at the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami. And you were talking with Elizabeth Stark about the topic of Bitcoin for billions and not the billionaires. And this is actually the topic I want to talk with you about today too. And But before, I would like you uh, to give an, us a short update uh, about the macroeconomic uh, developments in the last year, because you were a guest on my show last July in 2020, where we were talking about um, the reasons why you started to invest in Bitcoin, about the general macroeconomic situation, Bitcoin's network effect. And um, for the listeners, you can find that show on anita.link slash 70. Lynn, what has happened uh, since last July? You know, mainly we've had this this huge kind of, uh, you know, uh, basically it's almost like a control system trying to find its equilibrium. And so we had, you know, in early 2020, we had the big disinflationary shock from, you know, a pandemic, from shutdowns, things like that. Then we had, you know, the largest fiscal stimulus program we've, we've seen worldwide since World War II, right? So this this huge kind of money growth and, and fiscal spending. And that's very different from the 2008 type of response because that was mostly a monetary response. That was basically recapitalizing banking systems, uh, whereas this one recapitalized uh, people and businesses. So money actually got out into the broad money supply rather than just the base money supply. And so that was a key difference. It's more inflationary uh, and more impactful. Uh, and so we saw this huge kind of, you know, speculative frenzy, assets going up. Uh, and then, of course, in, in late 2020, when they had the vaccine announcements, uh, that started to impact, um, you know, some of the more value oriented sectors, things like, you know, hotels or energy companies, things that have, have had kind of recovered more slowly, uh, then started to get this big uh, period of outperformance compared to some of the tech stocks that at that point were rather expensive and you know, maybe their their extreme growth rate was slowing down at that point because the, the stay-at-home trend was subsiding. Uh, and then as we've gone into 2021, uh, you know, we, we've, we've kind of normalized to some extent in the sense that, you know, money supply is not growing up as quickly as it, as it had last year. Uh, uh, the economies are still, however, you know, they're, they're still somewhat reliant on fiscal spending. Uh, they're, you know, basically in a situation where even though we're seeing some of the inflationary pressures from the combination of money supply growth and supply chain limitations, central banks are still keeping their interest rates at zero for now, right? So if you're holding cash in a bank or if you're holding treasuries, you're getting uh, a, uh, a, a yield, a coupon that is below the prevailing inflation rate. Uh, and so people are getting devalued gradually. And so we, we have this kind of system that, you know, might not be as extreme as 2020, uh, but it's still a rather rough environment for investors. Uh, and some of the obvious places to put capital are less obvious today because some of those valuations caught back up. Many things are expensive. Uh, housing prices in many places went up. And so investors are, you know, kind of find themselves, uh, it's more challenging to deploy capital. And at the same time, uh, we have deflationary effects from the technology side. Um, and I also think from other sides of the economy or, or also uh, the, the population like in the US is not growing anymore at that rate as it did in the last decades. Can you talk about a little bit about this deflationary effect and what they, where they come from and what the effect will be in the coming years? Sure. So in general, 
uh, money supply growth per capita and price inflation are pretty correlated. Uh, and now there are some periods in history where there's exceptions where you can have you can have money supply go up quite a bit and prices don't necessarily follow at, at nearly the same rate. And so an example was uh, the United States in the late 1800s, for example, because one is the United you know unlike say England, where the land was you know mostly used up, the United States had you know they, they expanded into this big continent. Uh, and so that was you know, so basically land was cheap and and basically they that was able to push prices down. And two, there was a, there was a host of inventions, you know, uh, electricity, uh, the internal combustion engine, basically the oil age, all of that kind of you know was extremely uh, uh, deflationary in a good sense, in, in, in the in the form that it made goods and services cheaper in many cases. And so you had a pretty rapid period of money supply growth because banks were expanding, population was expanding. You know, things were getting more financialized from a very, very low financial base, uh, but all these technology kept uh, uh, prices low, basically tons of abundance. Uh, another example was after World War II, when Japan kind of had their economic miracle and they, and they kind of rebounded from that devastation, they had much higher money supply growth than price inflation because it was very, very productive growth. They organized their society extremely efficiently for uh, several decades there, and they, they basically you know, were extremely effective. Uh, and then the third example that we're kind of still in now is ever since the, the you know, kind of the mid-90s, we've been in another period where money supply growth is growing faster than, than general price inflation. And that's in part because, you know, we've, we've offshored a lot of our labor to cheaper markets. Uh, and so that's kept wage inflation down, which is translated into lower prices. We also have the internet. So we've been able to digitize a lot of our goods and services. And so, for example, I don't currently own a camera. My phone is my camera, right? And, and I can I can say that for like 10 other things I, I might have owned or, you know, physical physical calendars or all, all sorts of stuff is kind of all kind of gone into my phone. And that's, the, you know, I, I, I generally, I, I drive less than I used to. I don't, you know, there's basically, there's a lot of efficiencies that are, that are given to us from not only the internet, but especially the mobile internet. Uh, and so, that period has been a, a rather disinflationary force, and then we combine that with the fact that you know in many developed countries we have we have aging demographics, right? So if you look at consumer spending by age range, uh, someone who's say over 60 generally spends less than someone who's in their 30s, right? Because they're you know they're they're they, they've already kind of a, achieved certain things, and now they're 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 not they're not consuming and growing a family, for example. And we, we even see, for example, in, in say China. Uh, their their age demographics are also uh, kind of getting more deflationary, and so you, there's only kind of a handful of markets left, like you know places like Africa or India, where they actually have very young and and and, and rapidly growing demographics. And so a lot of these forces are very deflationary or disinflationary, meaning lower inflation, uh, but that's countered by all of the monetary policy and fiscal policy that tries to maintain positive inflation uh, in the face of all that. Uh, and so basically, we're, we're we're kind of in the middle of a giant tug of war, where you have all these dis disinflationary forces. But then, if you raise broad money supply by 25% in one year, you're naturally going to get supply chain bottlenecks. You're going to get price increases on certain types of goods and services. And so this is something that's playing out. You know, you know, I think we still have years of this kind of tug and you know this this tug of war playing out. You just mentioned China and Africa, and uh, in Africa, there's a, the population is on average, I think, 22 years old or something like that. Um, and 
they are also, they don't have as much uh, consumer goods, I'd say, like we have. So I guess all the Chinese people also want to drive a car one day and also the African people. How will this play out? I mean, um, I, 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 sometimes I don't understand. Um, um, we, we don't have any growth here in, anymore. And I guess it's also better to not follow the path of uh, a, an ongoing, everlasting growth. It's not possible. But on the other hand, we have um, uh, like continents like Africa, they, they want to, um, like, how shall I say, they want to catch up with us, you know? So what's your thoughts on that? I mean, there have been examples of, of countries that started out rather poor and then became much wealthier over time. An example would be Singapore. Another example would be South Korea. They're basically countries that have navigated that, that growth uh, into becoming uh, you know, a much wealthier, more comfortable society. Uh, and now we see, for example, China is currently sort of uh, in that middle income area where, you know, but there's a big spectrum, right? So there's people in the cities that, that you know, uh, in many cases, uh, uh, basically, they, they live developed country lives, whereas in, in rural areas, the, in many cases, they're still very, very impoverished. Uh, and so China overall, uh, you know, they consume still a lot less oil per capita than the United States. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, less than less than 20 percent per capita uh, than the United States. And India's uh, you know, a fraction of that. Uh, and so there is still a pretty significant kind of growth profile in energy usage and commodity usage and just overall consumption as some of these large population centers kind of, you know, even if they just go to the high end of emerging market consumption levels or the low end of developed market consumption, uh, you know, there's still kind of a, a pretty long runway of growth there in those regions unless something, you know, really bearish happens and prevents them. We also see generally that as a country gets more developed, you know, things kind of rotate out of them a little bit. So China, for example, they're not as cheap of a market to uh, produce things as they used to be. Uh, and so in many ways, you know, uh, uh, some sorts of uh, uh, production has shifted to places like Vietnam, for example, that are that are a little bit behind that curve. And also China has uh, used Africa as essentially their emerging market. Uh, and, and that's, you know, in some cases, that's been beneficial to build infrastructure and things like that. It's, it, it's, it's given them some economic activity. On the other hand, uh, you know, there's some exploitive loan policies and, and other things like that that are, you know, uh, I think, you know, basically in, in, more in China's interest than in Africa's interest. And so it's just an ongoing trend to keep watching. Yeah, but that's something all bigger nations are doing. I mean, that's also yeah. what's happening with the U.S. dollar. And uh, that's also a reason why, uh, or, I mean, not the reason, but it's, it's a fact that El Salvador uh, is a very poor country. And um, now they... Um, said that Bitcoin is going to become legal tender in the next 70 days or something, I guess. And um, I mean, with 24% uh, of the GDP of El Salvador in remittances sent uh, to the country, um, it's interesting and, of course, a, a great idea, basically, to use Bitcoin for that. Um, what do you think um, will be... I mean, we didn't hear from the IMF, I think. I mean, there has been or should have been a meeting between uh, the president of El Salvador and the IMF. I haven't heard back, did you? Um, and um, what do you think, how will this play out? I mean, um, will the situation of El Salvador in general um, get better or um, is it also a danger for the country? 
Oh, so I, I believe that IMF released a, a statement saying that they were not really in favor of that move. Um, uh, but that's natural because, you know, they're basically they, they, they prefer the current kind of dollar based system. Um, I, I think overall it's a very positive move for the country. Uh, you know, it's not without risks and execution risk and, you know, basically implementation risk. Uh, but it does solve, you know, a handful of problems. So basically El Salvador is one of those interesting countries that doesn't have their own currency. They, they rely on the dollar for their currency. Uh, which is tricky because you're relying on an external provider of your currency and that provider can, you know, they can sanction you so they can cut you off from your own currency. Uh, so you're basically now subservient to that country in many ways. Uh, and then two, um, you know, you're, you're subject to that country's centralized monetary policy. So uh, basically, you know, they're, they're just very reliant on getting dollars from this external uh, source. Uh, and And that has all sorts of ramifications. And so, for example, if the dollar gets devalued because the United States sends checks to all of its citizens, uh, and this other country is using the dollar, well, they didn't get the, they didn't get the checks, uh, but they did get the devaluation, uh, unless of course the remittances increased by a similar amount because maybe maybe the people the immigrants in the United States got checks that then went back to but we don't we don't I'd have to see the data, so there's a good chance that they basically get more of the the downsides than the upsides from that, uh, and so. You know, it's also well known at this point from from people like Jack Maulers that if you look at you know the fees associated with the remittances, they're quite high. Uh, the, the the ability for people to access those remittances are, are it's challenging. They have to you know go long distances on a bus, go to a physical place, uh, and so basically it's an application of software, just like software has eaten many other types of of businesses. Software is now kind of coming at the money system uh, in a way that it hasn't really done in the past uh, you know decade or so. And so this this offers a way to make that much more efficient. And if it's legal tender, it basically gives more more things that El Salvador uh, people can do with the with the money when they get it. So they can they can leave it in Bitcoin and spend it directly, or they can convert it to dollars. If the if the banking system can easily convert between Bitcoin and dollars for them, uh, it, you know them or their merchants, you know they, there's basically more ways that they can just access that rather than having to go to a handful of say Western unions in the country and do that conversion. And so it should be impactful for the country. And then of course, if Bitcoin were to continue its long-term appreciation, uh, if there's more Bitcoin in the country, uh, either the citizens hold it or uh, you know they convert it to cash and then the, the country holds it as a, as a reserve or something, uh, then that would benefit the country. Uh, now, some of the risks are, I mean, they're exposed, you know, in some cases to the volatility of Bitcoin, uh, but you know, they have the option of just using Bitcoin, the monetary network, and, and still primarily using dollars if they prefer. And then two, you know, if say if Bitcoin were to have a, a longer term depreciation in value and the country decide, you know, that say they're holding a, a significant reserves of them or if citizens decided to store money in them, then they would, of course, lose purchasing power. And so there is risks of that Bitcoin itself would have to be successful, likely in order for that program to be long term successful. But overall, I think it's a really, you know, it's, it's certainly a good addition to what they're currently doing because it does solve some actual problems. Mm, exactly. And uh, which countries do you think um, could be next? I mean, I've heard from Paraguay maybe, and I guess all those dollarized countries who are in deep dependence on the US dollar could try to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where this was a situation where the, the president was on board with it and he had a super majority in Congress on his side. And so it's, it's, it's you know, it's you're able to get things through in that sort of environment. 
Um, so you'd have to, uh, you know, someone who's more knowledgeable than me on the individual country politics would have to kind of know the probability of getting it passed in any one of them. But essentially, yes, you'd, you'd look at any kind of small country that's dollarized and then especially ones that are reliant on remittances. Uh, and so all of those, it should be kind of a no brainer uh, to basically, you know, at least look into strike or these other kind of lightning based technologies to see how they can make remittances uh, better. And then maybe, you know, whether they, they do legal tender or just otherwise reduce frictions on, on people being able to convert that into dollars or basically, you know, to get that circulating in the, in the economy. Exactly. I also think it doesn't have to become legal tender everywhere. I mean, the, the most important thing is uh, that the people on the ground learn about Bitcoin and learn how to use Lightning because it's actually not that difficult. I mean, you only need the, 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 the right wallet and there are a lot of it and you can send money from everywhere to everywhere to, to like zero fees with Lightning. And as you say, the, the exchange um, locally, that's the difficult part. But I know that even in Zimbabwe, where you wouldn't uh, think that it's possible, there are telegram groups, WhatsApp groups, where people uh, like peer-to-peer -peer exchange Bitcoin to local currency or to US dollars. So I think that if there's a will, there's a way and the technology is here. And um, so... What I would be interested, because you're more, much more an economist uh, than I am, I am not, so <laughs> that's easy in a way. Um, how do those um, countries get into a situation like that? I mean, um, of course, there are a lot of countries which are in these uh, situations being exploited by China or by Russia or by uh, the US um, hegemony. Um, I always wonder, like, I mean, countries like Zimbabwe, I think they had of a lot of uh, natural resources, but basically it's their authoritarian regimes uh, that exploit the country and take the people's money away. I guess that's one of the main reasons why so many countries around the world are in that um, bad situations. Or are there other reasons? How do you see that? Yeah, there's a big broad spectrum of reasons why that can happen. And so it's generally, you know, a country that doesn't have their own currency. It's often because they had a war or they had some sort of economic collapse or hyperinflation. Usually those things often kind of go together uh, or they're just so small and, and, and they're so tied to the U.S. that they just, you know, it seems like better to use dollars. Uh, and so usually a combination of those factors. If you look at emerging markets as a whole, you know, a general difference between emerging markets and developed economies is that d developed economies are generally able to finance debt in their own currency. Uh, and so whether it's United States or Britain or Europe or Canada or Australia or Japan, you know, when, when the government and companies and households issue debt, uh, they, they either they take out loans or they sell bonds, it's in that country's own currency. Uh, and so whereas emerging markets, uh, you know, they're often reliant on external capital. Uh, and so if investors from the United States or Europe or Japan or China want to invest in a, in a country, you know, they, they generally don't want to take on that local currency, that local country's currency risk, especially because, you know, that country might not be very di uh, diversified economically. And so it's easier for an economic collapse to happen, some sort of weird imbalance to happen and kind of damage the currency. And so they say, OK, we'll lend you money, but we're only going to do it in dollars or euros or something. Uh, and so the country ends up having these obligations in a currency that they can't print. So it's 
So it's almost it's like a it's like a sound money for them, right? They they're they're they owe money in something that they can't create, so dollars or euros, uh, and yet their revenues are generally still denominated in their own currency, uh, and they're reliant on global trade in order to keep getting the dollars or euros needed to service those debts. And so when you have a, a recession, uh, then you you generally have trouble paying those debts. You're likely to default on some of them. Or let's say the United States says, okay, we're actually gonna we're gonna raise interest rates now, uh, and so the dollar strengthens compared to other currencies. Well, if you're say you're Argentina and you're you know you you have dollar-based debts, but your your revenues are in are in Argentina's currency. Well, and the dollar just got way stronger because they they the Fed tightened monetary policy. Well, now you're out of luck. It's it's like basically your your debts just got a lot higher relative to your local currency, and so that increases default risk. And so what often happens is is in these situations is whereas a developed country could just devalue their own currency essentially even mildly and just kind of you know they're never really at default risk in that sense. These emerging markets are at more outright default risk, and their owning currency can hyperinflate because they just don't have the reserves to back up their external obligations. Mm -hmm. To me, it sounds like a, a sort of a death spiral. I mean, as soon as exactly. you're dependent uh, and your debt is in U.S. dollars, you have to repay the U.S. dollars. And so, I mean, how can you ever get out of this? this? I mean, maybe maybe is Bitcoin one of the solutions, the possible solutions? Yeah, it's one of those things. It's exceptionally challenging to get out of it. There, you know, there have been examples. I mean, for example, in the late 90s, there were a number of, it was the Asian financial crisis, uh, and the epicenter really wasn't in Thailand. And so the Thailand, uh, their currency peg broke. Uh, they did not have enough reserves. Uh, and so Thailand, South Korea, uh, Russia had problems, and 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 then Singapore was impacted. They, they were able to kind of, they, they had the reserves though, so they were they were able to absorb that. But some of those countries were, were seriously hurt by the strengthening dollar. Uh, against the fact that they didn't have reserves and they did have debts. Uh, but now if we look at their situations, uh, you know, Thailand, uh, South Korea, and Russia now all kind of learned from that lesson. They have very, very high reserves uh, relative to the amount of, of say, dollar-based debts they have. And so they're in much stronger shape now. Uh, whereas there's other countries like, uh, say, some of the South American countries, they tend to be, they tend to kind of uh, have fallen into this trap multiple times. And so it kind of comes down to there. There are ways where if they if they get external loans and they deploy that capital extremely productively, and then their economy grows substantially, then they can reduce those external loans as a percentage of GDP, strengthen their own currency, strengthen their reserves. And so there is a way out of it, but it's just a very it's like a narrow path, right? There's there's way more ways to go wrong than there is ways to go right. Uh, and so you know it's challenging to fix that because. You know, if they're say they're getting external loans from a, a source in Bitcoin, they would still potentially have a similar problem. Uh, but it, it really kind of comes down to, you know, if they if they say held Bitcoin in their reserves and Bitcoin would appreciate that could get them out of it in a better way. And so, you know, there's it's the actual problem is kind of deeper than any one currency. Uh, there's no kind of magic bullet for that solution. It's really just about the inherently challenging thing of, of developing a country from from a lower developed status to a higher developed status and that there's inherently more ways to go wrong than right. Uh, but there are kind of, you know, certain ways that, that can be fixed. And I think one of them would be currency diversification. And so, for example, when they're when they're they're primarily reliant on dollars and this external source can just tighten dollars and basically strengthen them. Uh, then that that's a problem for them. Whereas if you had a more multi-currency solution, or if you had kind of a, a neutral reserve asset, then
then you'd, you'd be potentially less prone to those fluctuations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think you, in one of your latest articles, I think you're also uh, talking about the uh, chances and the opportunities the people on the ground have um, with Bitcoin now that we basically, we all as individuals, we can outperform the world-class investors and the banks and the big funds now uh, only through holding the cryptographic keys. And uh, my book is talking a lot about how to get into this self-sovereignty with Bitcoin. And you also write about the concept of self-custody. Um, you, the examples you give are gold, Bitcoin, and cash. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit about the differences and um, what are the most interesting facts about it for the people to, to know uh, who want to diversify their portfolio, base, basically? Yeah, sure. So basically, most people, you know, they... they a lot of the assets they hold are actually held by other people. And so if you have a brokerage account filled with equities, uh, you know, those are held on your behalf. Same thing if you hold bonds and things like that, or if you hold cash in a bank, you know, your, your cash in a bank, for example, is the bank's liability. They, you, you're basically holding IOUs with the bank. Uh, and so you have a lot of counterparty risk with most of these types of assets. Uh, and then there are some self-custodied assets like, you know, there's real estate, but that's not portable or liquid or fungible. Uh, and then there's maybe collectibles like, you know, trading cards or wine or, or art or something like that. But again, that's also not very, you know, uh, liquid or fungible. Uh, and so there's really only a handful of assets that are, that it can be self-custodied, but that they're money-like in the sense that they're liquid, they're fungible, they're portable. And so you have physical cash, you have precious metals, uh, and you have cryptocurrencies. Uh, and so physical cash, obviously the downside is if you're holding it, you know, outside of the banking system, you're generally getting devalued even faster because you're getting, you know, no interest rates except for maybe Europe because you have negative interest rates in the banking system anyway. But in, in so so basically, you know, physical cash has shortcomings in the sense that you know you might want to hold a little bit for emergencies, but you don't necessarily want to hold all your cash under the mattress because you're going to get devalued over years and decades. Uh, then there's gold, which is a, a, certainly a, a much bigger step up from that because if you say hold gold for decades historically you, you generally maintain your purchasing power over the long run um you know there's there's been a couple times in history like 1980 or 2011 where if you bought right at the high at the bubble high you took a long time to kind of get your purchasing power back but in general for most pe people if they just held gold they generally did okay however gold is subject to confiscation it's not very portable if you for whatever reason you want to you want to move somewhere you want to leave the country uh, it's really hard to get your gold, you know, through an airport, for example, unless you're bringing like a, just a couple coins. Uh, and so uh, it's just not a not a, a super ideal uh, one to hold in large quantities. Uh, Bitcoin's interesting because it's you know it's it's inherently more portable than gold, and it's 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 harder to confiscate and easier to self custody. So someone can they can they can be mobile with it. They can go from country to country. Uh, and just either have it on their phone or have it in their head, whatever the case may be, whatever their self-custody method is, multi-signature, uh, and they can just travel around and they basically have this access to this, this global database, you know, pretty much wherever they are, as long as they can get to an internet connection. Uh, and so that, that really kind of, you know, adds another layer of options to people that they didn't have before. And so someone can self-custody some of their own assets in a way that is just portable and, and challenging to confiscate. 
And so, you know, the, the, the downside there is that, you know, so because it's a younger technology, you have more volatility, right? So you have more volatility than gold or cash in, in say, uh, any given multi-week or multi-month period. Uh, and then two, uh, you know, uh, unlike gold and silver, there's only a handful of precious metals. You know, the challenge of cryptocurrencies is anyone can come and copy the code and, and try to compete against you. And so you're relying on the network effect of, of the protocol you choose. And so that's why, so for example, in 12 years, Bitcoin has stood very well against, you know, 10,000 competitors, but it does remain an ongoing challenge. As we saw, for example, in this cycle, you know, when people, you know, that are, that got into the space that probably should have been buying Bitcoin instead end up going out and buying dog money. And, you know, it's this, tra it's this trap that people, you know, keep falling into. Uh, and that's just an kind of inherent challenge of, of cryptocurrency because it is open source and copyable. And so people have to go through the lessons to kind of differentiate what makes some better than others. What, what, why do some of them, especially Bitcoin, have a, a serious network effect and serious kind of sound money, uh, money policies, uh, whereas the other ones are insufficiently decentralized, insufficiently secure or otherwise prone to devaluation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the other ones have trade-offs um, that most people, I think, don't understand maybe because it's a difficult topic. And as you say, um, the other coins have marketing budget and people who, who tell uh, stories about it. And what I think mostly interesting is that most of the times uh, those uh, project leaders, I would say, they uh, find reasons why Bitcoin is not that great. And that's their reason why their coin is better yeah but um yeah they can't prove it anyhow yeah so let's get back to the self-custody thing and because you you write in your article an interesting sentence i had to laugh a little bit uh in some places today it's illegal to own bitcoin governments sometimes find them too dangerous how could something so useless also be so dangerous <laughs> Because governments at the same time say, uh, or also the media, Bitcoin is useless, it should be banned. But uh, I guess um, you're not of that opinion, because then it couldn't help the billions that we want uh, to use Bitcoin. Uh, no, I'm certainly in favor of it not being banned. And, and part of that statement is to show kind of the inconsistency of that line of thought. And so... You know, on one hand, you have basically some Bitcoin critics saying, oh, it's not used for anything. It's not useful. It's just a speculative bubble. It's a casino asset. Uh, on the other hand, you have some of the same people saying, uh, you know, governments should do like a, should should ban Bitcoin or, or do a coordinated ban on Bitcoin. And my response to that is, well, if you think it's useless, it's bad technology. I mean, the private sector will work that out over time. It'll just lose value. People will stop being interested in it. And it won't matter. There's no reason to ban something that is just kind of going to work itself out anyway. And so you'd only consider banning something if you were afraid of it or you thought it was some sort of credible threat. Uh, and so it's just kind of funny seeing that kind of inherent contradiction, uh, whether it's the media or whether it's certain critics. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there are, you know, there, there's certainly room for valid criticism of Bitcoin. You know, basically there are people that can analyze it and for whatever reason they're, you know, they're not, they're not bullish on it. But, but it's funny when you start to see basically people hold these contradictions that, that don't make sense really. And so it's just kind of pointing that out. Yeah. And it even gets more funny if certain billionaires like uh, switch their opinion from one day to the other day. And I think this uh, one guy I'm talking about, he will be back someday soon maybe and uh, use Bitcoin again. Um, 
what do you think? Why do most people follow those uh, billionaires so much? Like um, as soon as Elon Musk says Bitcoin is not good, everybody sells. Why, why are we like that? Well, I think a lot of people, I mean, you know, we're in kind of an age of hero worship or influencer status where people kind of cling to certain certain famous people. Uh, and, and of course, there's different levels of fame, right? So some, so some niches, they'll have whatever their niche is, there will be certain leaders in that niche that they kind of look to. And then when you get to a uh, kind of a, a bigger scale, there's people like Elon Musk that most people in the world know. Uh, a lot of people like him. They're the kind of in their minds represents optimism, right, about space or renewable energy and, and, and things like that. And so, you know, when, when, you know, when he kind of uh, uh, turns against it, it makes a lot of them kind of worried about it. Uh, and also, I think, you know, it's also there's then people that are kind of focusing on the probability of, say, other corporations adopting Bitcoin, right? So so as soon as he made that decision to, to no longer accept Bitcoin or to sell 10% of his Bitcoin or whatever the case may be, I think the you know, any investor kind of looking at the space said, well, the probability of, of more corporations adopting Bitcoin this year compared to what might have otherwise happened before this happened certainly went down a little bit. And so you have kind of that adjustment happening. Another thing I pointed out is that, you know, the price action was already kind of consolidating before the whole Elon drama. And a large part of that was the fact that, you know, in, the, in the, say the second half of 2020, uh, by far the biggest buyer was Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Uh, and so part of that was natural demand, and another part of that was that neutral arbitrage trade, where, where people could basically buy Grayscale, uh, you know, from inception, and then they could short Bitcoin elsewhere. And after six months, they could they could basically end that trade and extract that premium uh, that 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 Grayscale trades over net asset value. Uh, but then when you had you know kind of more competition, so you had a Canadian Bitcoin ETF. Uh, you have just better user interfaces among exchanges and other other ways to access it. You have places like Fidelity and other other uh, you know basically you know it's ways to access Bitcoin without going through kind of a uh, an overvalued grayscale Bitcoin trust. Uh, that premium went away, uh, and so that whole neutral arbitrage trade dried up. And so basically, the biggest buyer from the second half of 2020 stopped buying in the first half of 2021. And so when the bigger when the biggest buyer goes away. We started to see some some consolidation of price action. So then you're you're kind of you know you're vulnerable to other what otherwise would be relatively small things like like one influential billionaire saying you know I'm not accepting it anymore or I have ESG concerns uh, and so it, it was already kind of prone to the possibility of kind of near term weakness. Mm -hmm, understand. And adding up to that is now the the China ban, the Bitcoin ban on miners. Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, this, there's clearly disruption in the near term, right? So you have hash rate going down. Uh, we have an unknown amount of, of miners and hash rate moving. We still don't know the exact time frames or how rapidly this is occurring, or we don't know the, the final state of how thoroughly mining will leave China, if it'll be like a complete exodus or if it'll get cut in half or, you know, we don't we don't know the exact end game here. Uh, but we, we are starting to see, obviously, some hash rate distribution. Uh, and so that can that can be accompanied by potentially forced selling of coins. If you have to, if you have to, you know, sell your, if you have to basically get your equipment offline, you have to transport it. Now you have extra expenses. Uh, if you're no longer in the business, you might have to liquidate. Uh, and so you know, we you kind of see some just natural disturbances happening. Uh, but I, I think as many people have pointed out, in the long run, that's that's arguably better for the Bitcoin network. Uh, because you ideally want to have no country with, with you know, more than 50% hash rate. 
uh, even if you know because even though the nodes can push back on on minor collusion uh, it's still better just to have hash rate be more distributed uh, it also removes some of the the common criticisms of, of bitcoin that it's you know is controlled by china or that it's powered by chinese uh, coal energy uh, or, or things like that and so over time if this distributes to north america or iceland or kazakhstan or uh, el salvador you know if it kind of just distributes to more countries at a more even basis uh, there still be obviously areas that have more concentration than others, uh, but if you can get to a, a place where, you know, there's no country that had nearly as much of a percentage of hash rate as, as China had, that is that should long run be better for Bitcoin. Mm. And I mean, we can only speculate, but do you think that the reasons for the mining ban are their own inflation? Um, maybe or and or uh, the rollout of their surveillance uh, currency? So I've seen a number of credible reasons why it could have been, and it could have been a multivariable decision. So one is, you know, the, one of the reasons China has such a big, uh, you know, is, it's been such a big uh, a hub for Bitcoin mining is twofold. One is, you know, they, they overbuilt these energy sources, so they had a lot of stranded energy. And their grid didn't fully keep up with that, right? So they built some energy production before they had the grid fully optimized to be able to kind of distribute that energy. And so there's naturally going to be Bitcoin miners come in and exploit that. In addition, it's also a big region for electronic assembly. So it's easy to get all the parts cheaply and and, and kind of, you know, maintenance and all that. And so the combination of, of relatively cheap labor, uh, access to electronics, and then those stranded energy sources is made an ideal Bitcoin mining hub. Uh, now, the grid is is getting kind of better. It's getting more efficient over time. Some of those inefficiencies that they've been exploiting are going away. And I think, you know, China doesn't necessarily want that competing with grid energy. You also see, uh, you know, that they are having uh, some commodity shortages in certain areas or, or you know, commodity price increases. Uh, and then three, they are rolling out their, their, you know, their own central bank digital currency. And, you know, mining potentially represents a way to basically uh, uh, avoid capital controls because you, you you know mining coins is like the cleanest way to get coins because you just you generate them you don't you don't you don't have KYC when you earn the the, the, the coins and so those can be kind of uh, exported more easily than than say KYC coins could be uh, and so overall China you know might have had multiple reasons to try to you know crack down on that a little bit um, but, you know, I think in, in the long run, it'll be their loss, right? So I think, you know, if there end up being fewer Bitcoin in China than there otherwise would have been, uh, you know, that's that's not ideal for them in the long run. And they'll lose out on some of this revenue and some of this intellectual capital and literal capital because some of that will, you know, those entrepreneurs and those business people and those, you know, those technicians, some of them will, will leave the country. They will go elsewhere. They'll move their capital elsewhere. Uh, and so, you know, whatever kind of near-term reasons they might have had, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's not helpful in the long term. Hmm. But I mean, Bitcoin due to the mining difficulty changes uh, will get back to an equilibrium. I mean, it's not a problem for the Bitcoin network. So it will take some time, like months, I heard, maybe even a half a year. But um, what are your, uh, what's your outlook for the second half of 2021? Uh, you said before what the reasons were why the price fell in the first half of the year until uh, Elon Musk was talking negatively of, about Bitcoin. 
Um, what is your near-term outlook? And um, I can remember you said the, the halving cycle, you think it will be about 18 to, or 12 to 18 months or something. How do you think this will play out in the coming months? So I, third, I certainly think that these factors have added some uncertainty to it. So the combination of the grayscale uh, uh, premium going away, uh, so taking out the biggest buyer, uh, and then having this hash rate distribution and this kind of more complicated, you know, supply chain thing happening under the surface, uh, those certainly added complicating factors to what's going on. We're also seeing that, as I point out, some of the rate of change of monetary policy this year is less extreme than last year. So, so money supply is still going qu quickly in many places, but it's growing less quickly than 2020. Uh, and so overall, you know, I don't have a ton of near-term conviction on what Bitcoin's price will do in any, say, three to six month period. Uh, I'm still long-term bullish on the protocol, uh, and I think, you know, we have seen some pretty violent, um, you know, kind of downside moves here. Sentiment's turned pretty bearish, which ironically tends to, uh, you know, tends to be more bullish than otherwise, right? When 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 basically everyone's bearish tends to be the time to, to you know, kind of go long. Uh, and so overall, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on it for this year, uh, but not, you know, not super high conviction about the price. What I'm actually kind of focusing on is the fundamentals. Uh, and so... You know, starting in, say, the, the end of 2020, I started focusing more so on the Lightning Network uh, because I started to see that that was reaching a critical mass. Uh, and so that's often been, been criticized for, you know, kind of a slower development process compared to something like DeFi. But, of course, the incentives are totally different. Uh, and they're basically, it's kind of that thing where, you know, you're building it slowly and correctly. Uh, so that when the time's right, you have that, that really good foundation. And so what I've been seeing is that, you know, you had that kind of, that, that that capacity was was getting better. You're starting to get kind of higher liquidity. And so I kind of just observed that lightning's kind of starting to catch on. And then in the six months since then, I and mean, now we're in mid 2021, you know, we've had a big increase in lightning network capacity. Uh, we obviously have the huge news from, from Strike and El Salvador and places like that. And so, you know, one of my takeaways also from the Bitcoin conference is that, you know, lightning was one of the kind of the highlights of the show in the sense that whether it's streaming sats from gaming or art auctions or the El Salvador news, uh, you know, uh, or just seeing some of the developers talk about it and kind of the things that they're working on. Um, I, I think, you know, lightning is kind of hitting the stage now where it's, it's kind of here for, for prime time. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, the, the fundamental network effects still much, still very strong. Mm, yeah, great. Yeah, also when I researched for the book, I found a long list of new services uh, on the Lightning Network. And um, but I'm, I'm, I don't really have a complete chapter about the Lightning Network in my book because for me, Lightning is Bitcoin. So it's it's integral. It's the the way to send uh, macro pay, uh, micro payments um, and very fast. And so I think it's really a, a, an extension that belongs to Bitcoin. And it's also quite interesting to see, do you follow the, the DeFi on Bitcoin um, developments? Uh, to some extent, not as close as some others, but I have been following it. And so, you know, I do think that, that that is an important foundation to eventually have as well. And so I'm glad people are working on it. And there's a, obviously there's a couple different protocols, the different implementations. Uh, and so, you know, the more DeFi that happens on Bitcoin, the healthier think, I think it is. Obviously in the, in the past couple of years, Ethereum and, and other chains have kind of stolen the show there. Uh, but I do think that, you know, having more of that happen on Bitcoin uh, would be ideal because, you know, if you're doing DeFi on a blockchain that's not sufficiently decentralized in the first place, then you're kind of doing, uh, you know, decentralization theater. Like it, it seems more decentralized than it really is, uh, whereas on Bitcoin, it, it's, it's truer decentralization. Uh, and so, 
uh, ideally, I'd like to see as much of that happen on Bitcoin as possible. Mm -hmm, great. Um, yeah, thanks for that. My last question um, regards is more in regard of your being also your, you're in a way a content creator. I mean, uh, you're writing a lot about investment strategies um, and Bitcoin. Um, what is driving you? I mean, you do uh, so many things. I see you on so many podcasts and shows. Um, what is the, the main um, like force that's driving you to, to work so much and to be so productive? That would be interesting. So one is I just enjoy it. If you find something, you just, you just whatever reason, it, it just kind of clicks with you. Uh, you're able to stick with it better. And I often use the example where, you know, when I was a kid, I, I tried to learn to, to do music a couple different times. I, you know, my father would always try to get me to practice the guitar. And I just, I just couldn't, like, it was never enjoyable. I just, I, I didn't have the knack for it. I didn't really, I was not very good at, at getting better at it and I didn't enjoy it. So I didn't really get that kind of just feedback loop uh, to, to, you know, get my passion and kind of get good at it. Uh, whereas when it comes to analyzing investments or financial markets, for whatever reason, I just enjoyed a ton. So I can, I can do it for like, you know, hours and hours and hours and then just keep learning and learning and learning. And so that whole kind of virtuous flywheel just exists for that whereas it doesn't exist for certain other interests. And so uh, it's just kind of that that natural luck. And then two, I would say that because we're in a very macro heavy decade, there's so many crazy things happening uh, that there's, I just see that there's so many people out there that just don't, you know, they don't understand things. And if you don't understand something, you're prone to kind of, uh, you know, s someone else's say, saying something sensationalist or, or basically giving an idea of how it's working, even if that, that, that might not be correct. If they don't have someone else explaining what's happening, they might be more prone to that. And so what, what I try to do is just kind of break things down as, as thoroughly as possible and say, here's, here's kind of the big macro forces that are happening. Here's why some of these weird things happened. Here's where this is likely headed, but we have to monitor it. And so I just try to provide that information to people. Mm -hmm. And how did you niche that down? I mean, um, how did you select those uh, topics and and how do you uh, focus that much that you don't uh, go into other uh, areas as well and then like uh, dilute your message? I mean, that's that's one of the inherent challenges is avoiding dilution. You know, for me, I think because, you know, I started out in engineering, uh, you know, there's I'm just inherently drawn to things that are that are technical. Uh, and so when I, whenever I can combine finance and engineering, it's kind of a sweet spot. And so, you know, so for example, Bitcoin represents that certain technology investments represent that. Um, and so, you know, kind of my sweet spots tend to be, you know, historically it's been kind of, you know, equities and commodities and precious metals. Those are, those are kind of my bread and butter areas. And then I've added, I've added Bitcoin to that. Uh, whereas there, there are certain other markets that I just don't follow quite as closely, such as for example, credit markets uh, as an example like that that's a it's a something i leave to other people uh, especially because you know that's an industry where the returns are generally, generally lower and so I, i i view it more so just as a macro indicator but not something i i generally have detailed insights on uh and so i you know i do still choose kind of a handful of asset classes that i put most of my energy into mm -hmm. and uh if i may ask you have this paid newsletter service How did you start that? Did you already have subscribers or did you start with zero subscriptions and said from day one, I have this paid service and you can choose it or not? Uh, so I started that when my, my, when my free platform was already pretty large. And so I started, I started my website in late 2016 uh, and had just free content. I had a free newsletter. Uh, and when that, you know, 
uh, got significant and I kind of, you know, found my type of audience. Basically, I got into the rhythm of finding out what, what people want from me, what I'm good at delivering to them. Uh, basically, you know, thinking about a, a couple different ways to monetize it or to provide extra value, I eventually settled on this this relatively low cost paid service. Uh, and I still have the, the same, you know, I still have the free newsletter. I still have the public free articles, but then I have this other uh, uh, paid service on the side that basically provides, uh, you know, more frequent updates than my than my free newsletter does. So it comes out three times more often uh, and, and it dives into say individual details uh, for certain companies or or certain things like I had a big section on lightning recently for example uh, that say my free newsletter uh, you know might not go into because that's only updating every six weeks it's, it's focusing on kind of big picture stuff whereas the the, the the premium service can kind of dive down into details and so that was kind of something that I added on after I already had that sufficient scale so when I offered it uh, it was already, you know, it rapidly was people, people bought into it right away because they already had a significant audience to, uh, you know, uh, uh, tap into. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for that. Because I think a lot of people are new into the space and also like me, I mean, I'm always looking for ways uh, as a content creator to, to earn some money in a way and how to, to grow your audience and also at the same way uh, time uh, bring your message out like about Bitcoin. Why is it so good uh, or what's the good thing about it? Thank you very much, Lynn. Uh, anything uh, that you want to add that we forgot uh, in the interview? Any new thoughts uh, on current developments? I think, I think, I guess probably to finish that last point uh, and tie it into Bitcoin, I would say, you know, when I approach my website, it's kind of like, you know, focusing on building a foundation. And so it, rather than try to monetize it super quickly or get into advertising and things like that, I just was like, let me do something that I enjoy, that I'm, I'm, I'm happy to build, that I think I'm building it correctly, and then kind of the build that long-term trust. Uh, and then, so for example, when I launched my service, like I've never done paid advertising, I've never done spammy pitches, there's no pop-ups on my website. It's basically all about just usability, and, and so it's kind of like building that foundation and then having it ramp up from there naturally. And so one of the things that, that for example, drew me to Bitcoin is that, you know, it, it's out of all the other, you know, kind of protocols out there or competing blockchains, that's the one where it's, it's really kind of about building that that foundation, even slowly if need be, so that when the time comes, the foundation is is solid and then it can ramp up quickly. And so I think, you know, whether it's whether it's designing a project or or being a content creator, I think that's kind of the main takeaway is, you know, always kind of focusing on the long run and kind of focusing on building that foundation rather than trying to pull forward the gains. Uh, you know, that you could get from, from doing it quicker or cutting corners. Mm. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Uh, I mean, it reminds me of this saying, uh, find something that you love, so um, do what you love. But uh, on the other hand, it uh, has to be something you love to do because uh, if you want to do it in the long run, uh, you also love to love the pro have to love the process and not only have something like a hobby that you like to do, you know. Um, yeah, one and of, I guess yeah. one of the phrases is if uh, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Exactly, <laughs> and I think you found that. I and I congratulate you on that because it's really a great thing to have in life. You as well. Yeah, thank you. I do. <laughs> so, Lynn, thank you very much. Um, was a great interview, very interesting again as always, and have a good day. Yep, you as well.
Thanks so much for joining the Anita Posh Show today to learn more about Bitcoin. You can find the show notes for this conversation on anita.link slash show. If you want to get the best stories in Bitcoin from my point of view in your mailbox, go to anita.link slash weekly and subscribe. And if you have a question or just want to send me some feedback, drop me a line at hello at anitaposh.com. See you next week when it's time for the Anita Posh Show. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Content, idea and production, Anita Posh. <laughs>